Well, hey, everybody. Once again, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're honored to have you along for the ride. We are in the second week of a series called The Journey to Faith, and it's all about what it looks like for an adult to make a decision to become a Christian. And as I mentioned last week, I have a very specific agenda for this series, and it, it goes like this. I love all of you who are considering becoming a Christian, like you're here and you're kicking the tires and you're wondering and you're asking questions. If that's you, I would love you to consider becoming a Christian in the next few weeks, Ser seriously. And I know that's an ambitious goal, but hey, I'm an ambitious guy. And I also know that each time that we gather, there are people among us who for one reason or another have never crossed the line of faith in Jesus. Like over the years, I've had conversations with more than a few of them. And to be honest, they have really good reasons not to have crossed the line of faith. For, for some, they would say it's the challenge of reconciling the idea of a good God with all of the bad that they see in the world. Like they watch cable news and the sky is falling. Are you with me? Right? Yeah. For others, um, it's the fact that, well, they actually grew up in church. And at some point, they recognized that the religious practice modeled to them by their parents simply wasn't worth emulating. Like they were in church, but then during the week, the whole faith thing didn't seem to make that much difference in their lives. So that's a, that's a real struggle for some. For others, the struggle has to do with the exclusivity of Jesus. I mean, honestly, if Jesus is right, and you, they ask, you know, does that mean that his followers have to believe that every other religious system is wrong? I mean, again, really good reasons. But, but here's the thing, and we talked about this at length last week, and if you missed it, you can catch up on our podcast on the website. But, um, you know, we talked about it last week, and this is still why I want to do this series. And, and this will surprise you. In my experience, adults don't generally become Christians after working through their objections. I, I mean, this certainly can happen, but at least with the people who talk to me, it's extremely rare. Instead, adults tend to become Christians because of something that happens to them that sort of shrinks their questions, and that something is always intensely personal. Okay, so now if you weren't with us last week, you should know that I mentioned that something similar happens whenever someone decides to get married. Remember I shared my list of why you shouldn't get married? Or, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had some fun with that. But there's a ton of reasons, if you think about it, why people shouldn't get married. I mean, we, we don't want to give up our freedom. Uh, we don't want to have to ask anybody for permission to do what we want to do before we do it. Uh, we don't have enough money to get married or to stay married. And we're not sure that marriage will make us happy. I mean, those are totally legitimate reasons not to get married. But as we said last week, nonetheless, in spite of all those reasons and more, a whole bunch of us do get married. And we don't do it because we've worked through all of our objections. We do it, well, we do it because something intensely personal happens and it comes along and it shrinks our objections and it makes our questions seem less important. It's that crazy little thing called love. You with me? Yeah. And when we fall in love, the idea of marriage instantly moves from a category that we can like poke and ask questions of to a person. And when that happens, our questions, our concerns, they don't go away, but they do become much less important. 
And I was thinking about it this week. I believe that the same principle applies to the idea of having more than two kids, okay? So as a father of four, I made us a list of why people who are thinking clearly should only have two children, okay? And my kids are watching online, so you're going to love this. Um, Okay, so only two children. Seriously, first let's talk about transportation, okay? It gets a lot more complicated when you have more than two kids, right? I mean, let's say you have a sedan or back in the day, like my family, a station wagon. We had a Volvo station wagon. We were high rollers, right? Anyway, very cool. Looked like a refrigerator going down the road. But anyway, you know, three kids in the back means somebody has to sit in the middle, right? Like on the hump. And that's where the problems begin, right? Because everybody is touching somebody else, right? I mean, it, it, transportation gets very complicated. And, and, then, and then there's the fact that when you have more than two kids, you risk one or more of your offspring developing something I call MCS, middle child syndrome, right? Yeah, you laugh, but it's a real thing. I'll prove it to you. Like how many of you were middle children? Just slip up your hand. You were somewhere in the middle. Yeah, that's right. And you know this. You're in church because you need help from Jesus dealing with your MCS, right? I mean, it is emotionally complicated to be in the middle. If you have, I mean, think about this. If you have just two kids, then one is the oldest and the other is the baby. And there is generally peace that reigns in the home. But then there's a middle kid and the middle kid can get lost in the shuffle. I once or twice may have left one of my middle children here at church, gotten home, been calling for them for lunch and realized they were still here, okay? Yeah, but if you have more than two kids, like the firstborn gets a bunch of attention because they're the firstborn, and as soon as the third kid comes along, the second kid is dethroned as the baby, hence MCS, right? That's another reason to only have two kids. Okay, number three. We need to talk about the cost of McDonald's. And if you're here and you're a franchisee, we need to chat after service, okay? I think there should be a multi-kid discount at McDonald's, just throwing it out there. But the cost of McDonald's, I'm telling you, especially since the pandemic, things have gotten out of control, right? The last time my family stopped for a meal during a road trip a few weeks back, recent example here, it cost us almost $60 for McDonald's. And I had to ring the thing into the screen by myself. And I remember thinking as I hit my credit card in the slot, dude, Jesus better come back soon because things are getting out of control. Okay? <laughs> right. And of course, it's not just McDonald's. In my experience, kids, they like to eat all, all the time, like three meals a day plus snacks. And as it turns out, feeding two is much less expensive than feeding three or more. So you get the idea. And, oh, and then, of course, there's the zone defense, right? When you go from two to more, it's like a sports analogy, and I'm not big sports guy, but you a sports guys are like, oh yeah, the zone, right? You go from a man-to-man to a zone, there's always one kid who's not covered. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. So there's all sorts of different reasons to only have two kids. Nonetheless, and I've personally experienced this twice, the day that your third or fourth child is born, every, everything changes. Because the idea of an additional kid moves from something intellectual and categorical to something intensely personal. I check out this photo. I found it on the Facebook. Uh, this is uh, my two eldest. So Carter is now 16. Parker is 14. And they no longer have footy pajamas. <laughs> Terrible. But anyway, this is the day that they met Colton for the first time. Um, and I remember holding him for the first time and realizing, like, I love him, 
and I would do anything for him. Like, he's expensive. <laughs> he needed two rounds of braces, friends. That is not okay. I didn't even know that was a thing. I'm like, what? I thought he was done with braces, and oh, we have a proposal. Now I'm venting. Group therapy. Thank you. Yeah, right. They're expensive, but they're also priceless, right? And so I say all that to say, for many of us, something similar happens when we decided to follow Jesus. Like, we still had really good, really valid questions and concerns, but somehow, somehow God became personal to us, so much so that we were willing to take up our questions and carry, it with them, carry them with us across the line of faith in Jesus, and what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning um, is to show you that this principle has been operating in the lives of people really for as long as there have been people. And, and to that end, I want to take you back to one of God's first moves towards people as it was recorded in the Old Testament book of Genesis. That's the first book in the Bible. It's a book of beginnings. Uh, and this particular uh, event happened around 2,000 years before the time of Jesus or around 4,000 years ago. And here's what I want you to see. God's movement towards people was intensely personal. In other words, when God made contact with people in the ancient world, he didn't first send answers to their questions or rules for them to follow. Instead, he revealed himself to one specific person in the most personal way imaginable. And when he did, he short-circuited pretty much everything that anyone in the ancient world had ever thought about the divine realm. And, and here's, here's why I say that. In those days, people were religious, uh, but what they did in their religion is they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how much they had to do or what they had to stop doing, how much they had to sacrifice in order to get the gods to give them what they wanted or what they needed. And that's why when you study ancient religions, you find that all over the ancient world, people routinely sacrifice things like crops and animals and even at times their children in attempts to secure divine blessing in their lives. Life felt out of control and they were desperate to do anything they could to make it feel more manageable. And they wanted their crops to be blessed they wanted their businesses to be blessed. And they even wanted to be blessed with more than two children. And I know what we talked about before, but it's because McDonald's hadn't been invented yet. I'm just throwing it out there, right? Yeah, yeah, you, not, you get my point. Um, ancient people wanted to be blessed by the gods. And, and so consequently, the ancient world was full of superstition. Like families had their own gods, cities had their own gods, Regions had their own gods, nations had their own gods, and people were endlessly negotiating with the divine realm in an attempt to secure the desired outcomes in their lives. That's the kind of world that God, the creator of heaven and earth, interrupted around 4,000 years ago when he made contact with a man named Abraham. Now, when we first see him in the text, he's called Abram, which means daddy. He's later renamed Abraham, which means big daddy. I love that. You know what I mean? That has no, it doesn't matter. I just think it's cool. Anyway, uh, Abraham lived in a major city called Ur in modern Iraq. And so here's a map to kind of give you a sense. So you see Israel uh, right here. You see the green of the Nile Delta here. Uh, Ur is somewhere 
in modern-day Iraq. And uh, here's also a picture of what the city may have looked like, an artist's rendering. It was a major center for commerce, and it was a major center for religion. Now, anyway, God came to Abraham and essentially told him that the time had come for his story, God's story, the story where he was going to rescue the world from sin and death. That story, it was time for it to enter a new chapter, and that God had decided that he would invite Abraham to be his partner to change the world. And I, and I find this really fascinating because I did a bunch of reading this week trying to figure out why Abraham, and we really don't know why, but what's undeniable is that God invited Abraham to do something incredibly, almost unthinkably disruptive, namely to pack up his family and to move to a land hundreds of miles away from all he had ever known. He was basically sent to the land we call Israel today. And moreover, he was inviting Abraham not just to leave physical location behind, but to leave behind all he had ever taught or caught about how the gods interacted with the human world. And before Abraham could respond to this invitation, God made him three incredible promises. Here's what God said to Abraham. He said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. He says, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And he says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And then look at this. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, God said to Abraham, I'm going to do something for everyone, but I'm going to begin by doing something for you. Because I don't want to be a mystery anymore. This is about to get incredibly personal. And now check out what God did next. The author of Genesis recorded that God told Abraham to go outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. He said, so shall your offspring be. An incredible promise. And it's easy for us to miss, but this promise would have been completely unbelievable to Abraham, not just because of the sheer number of the stars, but because at the time God made contact, Abraham and his wife Sarah were, Sarah's a great name for a wife, by the way. Hello, Sarah. Yeah, anyway, his wife Sarah, they were old, like really old, and they had never been able to have children. Infertility had marked the journey of their life. Infertility had scarred them deeply, and they would have lived their long lives wanting nothing more than to have children. And, and I'm sure, we don't know this from the text, but I'm sure they would have spent a ton of time and energy and resources attempting to convince whoever was in control to bless them with children. And they would have sacrificed everything they could think of in order to secure divine favor. And, and, and then there would have been those painful conversations around the campfire, right? Because people gathered around campfires then. They hadn't invented Netflix yet. What else are you going to do, right? And so they sat in circles and they talked. And the, and the painful conversations with family and friends who would have encouraged them to sacrifice more to the gods in order to activate blessing, in order to be able to have children. And then, you know, as the years and then the decades went on, I imagine that they began to hear suggestions that perhaps they had done something to anger the gods, and the soul-searching that would have ensued from Abraham and Sarah. What did we do? What could we have done? What can we do now? And I can only imagine all the nights when Abraham, all he could do in order to comfort Sarah was to hold her as she cried. And now, a God they had never heard of made contact 
and made them a promise that initially just had to seem empty. I mean, they were well past the age when conception was possible. So it maybe even felt like God was messing with them. Like, how could, they, how could their offspring possibly outnumber the stars? It was ridiculous. It was inconceivable. Nonetheless, and this is huge, in spite of their all-too-valid questions and concerns and doubts, the author of Genesis told us that Abraham believed or trusted or put his faith in the Lord. And then look at this. God credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness is right standing. It's like Abraham and God are in a restored relationship because of his belief or his faith. And I just have to ask, you know, does Abraham's response here surprise you at all? Because if you were Abraham, wouldn't you have some questions for God before you decided to trust him? I mean, I don't think anyone would judge you if you did. We certainly wouldn't judge Abraham if he did. But see, in this moment, something was different for Abraham because God became very personal to him. And we have to remember that at this time in history, God hadn't revealed anything about how he had designed people to live. There was no Old Testament law. There was no New Testament law. There were no standards. There was no temple. There was no nothing. There was no nothing. That means there was nothing, right? Yeah, double negative. Grammar majors hold your emails. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't anything other than a personal conversation between Abraham and God, and apparently that was all that was needed. Abraham essentially opened his hands and opened his heart and said, God, I don't know how this can possibly be, but I believe you. And in that moment, God gave to Abraham the gift of right standing with him. Not because of anything Abraham had done. And this is huge. This is Genesis, friends. It's the first book in the Bible. If you think about it, all Abraham did was to go outside and look at the stars. But nonetheless, God told Abraham that because of his faith, because of his trust, because of his belief, and because of his willingness to carry his unanswered questions with him across the line of faith, he was given the gift of a right standing with his creator. And by the way, and some of you have already caught this, that's how it's worked ever since. Anyway, Abraham didn't know what was going to happen to his family he had no idea why he and his wife had lived so long without being able to have a child. Why would a good God allow his wife to suffer the way that she had? And, and then if he's thinking about it, like, and God, what about all the other problems in the world? I mean, we are constantly living on the edge. How can you be good if the world is so bad? And again, Abraham didn't have any answers to those questions. But when God personally invited him to trust him, Abraham accepted and his journey of faith began. In fact, and I love this, 1,500 years or so after the time of Abraham, his willingness to trust God was celebrated by the author of the New Testament letter that we call Hebrews. So the author of Hebrews, this is after the time of Jesus, reflects back on the time of Abraham, and here's what he tells us. He says, by faith, again, belief, trust, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive at his inheritance, speaking of the land of Israel, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. 
Like God led him one step at a time. He says, by faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. And he lived in tents. I was like, it was intense. Huh. Okay, sorry. Um, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him. That's his kid and his grandkid, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And he says, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, speaking of God, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, meaning his lineage should not have continued, came descendants, and look at this, as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And I love that. Like for thousands of years, the Jewish people have pointed back to Abraham. For thousands of years, the Christians, Christians have pointed back to Abraham as a model of what it means to trust, to believe, to put your faith in God, to do something that feels so counterintuitive, but then to trust him with the outcome. And so I was thinking about it this week, and, and I think for me, the moral to Abraham's story is that God always comes to people on his terms and not ours. And a relationship with God always begins on his terms and not ours. And if you think about it, that actually makes sense. Like if there really is a creator of the sun, moon, and stars who also actually knows your name, if there really is a God who loves you enough to send Jesus to offer to pay for your sins, if there really is a God who promises to give you right standing with him if you'll simply trust that he provided it, if there really is a God that big and a whole bunch of us in this room are convinced that there is, then shouldn't he get to establish the terms of our relationship with him? Because I was thinking about it, like, if we're honest, what are our terms for a relationship with God? We want our questions answered. We want to know why. We want to know why, God, that painful thing that happened to us when we were kids happened and why God didn't answer our prayers back then. Like, why? Why? What, those are our terms. And I totally get it. That makes sense. We want to understand why there's so much suffering in our lives and suffering in the world before we choose to place our trust in a good God. But, but if you think about it, should we really be surprised that God reserved the right to draft the terms under which we can enter a restored relationship with him? Like in spite of our questions and obstacles and objectives. I don't think that should surprise us. He reserves the right to set the terms. Anyway, I want to show you one more passage from the Bible today, um, and it's a record of a conversation that happened 2,000 years after the time of Abraham between Jesus and his first disciples. Um, and at the time, they'd been spending a lot of time with Jesus, hearing him teach, watching him perform miracles. They'd become convinced that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the anointed one that God had promised to send to rescue and then lead Israel as her final and forever king. He was the guy. They believed that, and they believed that they were going to get to be the inner circle of the most powerful leader in the history of the world. Sounded like a good gig. The only question that remained, at least for them, was which one of the 12 was going to get to be the greatest when Jesus took his throne. And apparently there was enough discussion around this topic that one day they actually decided to ask Jesus directly. So one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Matthew, recorded the conversation for us. He tells us this. He says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, and I love this, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And obviously the easy answer here is Jesus, but that's not what they were after. They were looking for a name. Peter's like, 
this guy, right? John says, no, no, not you. I'm the guy, right? And Thomas is like, I doubt either of you is the guy. I am the guy. Oh, that is a good pastor joke right there. I'm telling you. All right. Yeah. But who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We need a name. Who's worked the hardest? Who's earned the right to sit at your right hand? And in response, Matthew recorded that Jesus, and this would have blown their minds, called a little kid and had him stand among them. Calls over a child. Says, I want you to stand right in front of my disciples. And the disciples would have been confused. And then Jesus spoke. He said, I tell you the truth. You guys got this all wrong. Which is typical. But anyway, unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, therefore, whoever humbles himself. So how do you get there? Humble yourself like this child is great, is the great in the kingdom of heaven. Who's great in the kingdom? Well, here's the thing. The path to greatness in God's kingdom is humility. You need to remember who you are. You need to remember who God is. That's how you enter God's kingdom, and that's how you become great in God's kingdom. That's the path and the vehicle to get to the life you wanted. It's humility, and you guys are demonstrating pride right now. And, and that got me thinking this week, I, I was thinking about all the conversations I've had with friends over the years who are really struggling with the questions. And, and I had this thought, like, if we're honest, I think it's fair to say that what often keeps us from crossing the line of faith in Jesus is a subtle and sinister thread of pride. And, and before you get defensive, hear me out. Like, many of us have had seasons where we've essentially demanded that God give us an explanation for the challenge in our lives. Like, like in our minds, we sort of sat down with him at a table and we've demanded he gives an account for either his actions or his lack of actions. It's like we say to him, listen, God, if this relationship thing is going to work out, then you've got to explain yourself. And, it, and it's okay to do that. You see this in the Psalms, but, but it, it feels good in the moment, but I'm telling you, you don't really want that because you don't really want a God that small. You don't want a God who thinks so much of you that he'd deal with you that way. What you want, what you need, what I need is a God who's big enough to answer our questions, but who's also personal enough not to have to. A God who simply invites you to trust him. And so Abraham opened his hands and opened his heart and said to him, God, I believe you even though I don't have answers to my questions. And then Jesus reinforced that idea when he said, you need to come to God with the humility of a child. And so I guess, ultimately, each of us has to decide what we're going to prioritize. Like our questions or the chance to get to know God on a personal level. Each one of us has to decide if we're willing to say to God, if you're able to be known then I trust you and I'm going to come like a child with faith and with humility. And that's why during you know, this series, I want to encourage those of you who are in the process of exploring a relationship with God to begin to pray just a simple prayer, something like, you know, God, if you can be known, I want to know you. I, I want to know you more than I want my questions answered. And it's like, God, you, you know that my heart is broken about the pain I've experienced in my life. 
You know why I struggle. You know, what I've, you know what's been done to me. You know what I've seen. You know what I've heard. You know why it's hard for me to believe. But God, I want to know you more than I want answers. God, would you give me the courage to come to you on your terms and not mine? And again, if that's you and you're in the process of exploring, I would just encourage you, begin to pray that prayer each morning and just see what happens. Before I let you go, I want to give you one more, one more question. And it goes like this. What do you have to lose? I mean, and I've had this experience with people, but you know that even if I could answer all of your questions in an emotionally satisfying way, and let's be honest, I couldn't. But even if I could, you still wouldn't necessarily cross the line of faith in Jesus. That's not how it works, and that's never how it's worked. Instead, adults cross the line of faith in Jesus when they realize and recognize that God has defined the terms of relationship, and they do not require him to answer all of our questions. Rather, they require us to come to him, doubts and all, and place our trust in the faith that he loves us and has made a way for us to be at peace with him. So again, what do you have to lose? The, the question is like, do you want to spend the next season of your life carrying the tension of the questions that keep you from faith in Jesus? Or would you be willing to hold them a little less tightly? The questions that you carry, and they're good questions, questions that arise from something that happened to you five years ago or five decades ago. The fact that somebody disappointed you and you decided that because that happened, God couldn't possibly be for you. But would you be willing just for the next couple of weeks try to open your hands and open your heart and come to God on his terms like a child with a willingness to trust? And would you be willing to say, God, I want to know you more than I want answers to my questions? I'm telling you, friends, that's how you can get over the hurdle because that's how adults generally come to place their faith in Jesus. And we'll pick it up there next week. Uh, but for today, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and we'll close our time in prayer. And once again this week, um, if you are visiting for the first time or you've been here for years and just something has happened recently and you're like, man, I would just love to pray with somebody. We would love to meet with you right after I dismiss us. Um, right under the screen to the left, there'll be some volunteers who, again, would love to spend some time with you. But for the rest of us, let me close our time. Heavenly Father, the word that um, keeps emerging in my mind and heart when we talk about this is the idea of wonder. The wonder that you are as powerful as you are and yet want to know us personally. Thank you for Abraham's example. Thank you for meeting him where he was and inviting him on a journey of faith. And I pray for friends that have never began that journey that that, that would start for them, that you would connect with them in a way that was undeniable yet unexplainable. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for seeking us. Thank you for your patience as we seek you. I pray for your grace and your peace to rest on us all. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. It's been great to see you. We shall reconvene next week for part three. Have a great day.